Greetings. I'm Larry Hubley, and I will be sharing with you from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 15. But let us begin with prayer, shall we? Lord, we come to you with open hearts and open minds, asking you to fill us with new and life-changing insights from your word. We ask you this in Jesus' name. Amen. And one more thing before we delve into the passage. We need to be reminded of something that Paul said in the previous passage. He was mulling over the fact that he would rather be in heaven, but he finds himself still here on earth. And so this is what he says. So, whether we're here in this body or away from this body, our goal is to please him, for we must all stand before Christ to be judged. And then today's passage. Now, bear in mind the Christian goal is to please God, all the while knowing we have to give him an accounting when the time comes. 2 Corinthians 5, 11 through 15. Because we understand our fearful responsibility to the Lord, we work hard to persuade others. God knows we are sincere, and I hope you know this too. Are we commending ourselves to you again? No, we're giving you a reason to be proud of us so you can answer those who brag about having a spectacular ministry rather than having a sincere heart. If it seems we're crazy, it's to bring glory to God. And if we're in our right minds, it's for your benefit. Either way, Christ's love controls us. Since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe we have all died to our old life. He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. So what's he saying? He's saying we understand our fearful responsibility to the Lord because we've made it our goal to please him. We work hard to persuade others that they too may know this Jesus of ours. Yes, he did die and rise again, that we might rise to live a new life in Jesus Christ. Now, again, I remind us, these are new Christians to whom Paul is writing. They're fresh from their old way of living in paganism, and yet they are sincere in their efforts to live the new way in Christ. And just to be clear, Paul is not boasting about how he lives. He simply wants these new believers to have all of the facts so that they can correct all the falsehood of Paul's enemies as they try to detract from his ministry among them. They want to take over the church and the congregation that Paul has founded in Corinth. As we read and reflect, we get the impression that Paul doesn't particularly care what others think of him, only that Christ be put forth and that God be glorified. Christ has died and Christ has risen. This is fact. As the result, they too may die to their old life, and they're now free to live their new life in Christ. As to whether or not some think him not in his right mind, Paul doesn't care. He would rather be with Christ in heaven and not here on earth. And so Paul says, either way, Christ's love controls us. This is how most modern translations put it. It turns out, though, that the New King James and the New International say Christ's love compels us. And I like that. I really embrace that. It means Christ's love motivates us 
Christ's love drives us. It propels us on. We're propelled on in love. For me, I, I do prefer this notion of Christ's love compelling me. I, I can't help myself. In response to his never-ending love for me and for the whole world, I am driven. I'm propelled. I've got to try. Admittedly, I have my faults as I've not yet fully taken hold of this new life in Christ, what it means to be born again and all of that. But as the old hymn states, there are depths of love that I cannot know till I cross the narrow sea. At the same time, it is Christ's love in me that controls and drives me on. In the process of digging into this passage deeper than ever before and mulling over this notion of God's love, I recall something that John wrote in 1 John chapter 4. He said, God is love. God may be a verb, an action word, as some have suggested, but the scriptures say that God is love, not any old love, but a special God love from the one who is love. God the Father is love. Jesus Christ the Son is love. God the Holy Spirit is love. The three-in-one God is love. So when Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor or comforter or helper or advocate who will never leave you, He is the Holy Spirit who leads into all the truth. And Jesus goes on to say this. He says that he, the Holy Spirit, lives with you and will be in you. He's speaking to the day of Pentecost when all who are present in that upper room are filled with the Holy Spirit. This means when we're born again and receive Christ as Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit of love comes to live in us, not simply to be with us. God, the Holy Spirit, moves in to take up residence in us. This is the love that controls and compels us, and it drives us to persuade others to follow Jesus. I find this overwhelming. It staggers the imagination. And I get so carried away with this when I think of these things that, that I have to reach for my, my collection of old hymnals and, and use it in the privacy of my residence to praise God. I come across such things as, when I think of God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in, that on that cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. And then I turn the page, and I come across this, that God should love a sinner such as I, should yearn to turn my sorrow into bliss nor rest till he had planned to bring me nigh. How wonderful is love like this. Oh my, wide open are his arms of love. Such love, such wondrous love. How wonderful is love like this. And of course, I'd be remiss if I didn't turn to Charles Wesley, who wrote, Love divine, all loves excelling. Joy of heaven to earth come down. And then, He seems to move from praise to prayer, and he says, Fix in us thy humble dwelling, all thy faithful mercies crown. Jesus, thou art all compassion, pure, unbounded love thou art. Visit us with thy salvation. Enter every trembling heart. And while I'm I'm caught up in these seasons of spontaneous praise and thanksgiving, 
I would be remiss if I didn't turn to one of my favorite English songwriters, Isaac Watts. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my riches gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. And then I remember we are to make it our goal to please God. And so Watts's final stanza just says it all for me. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Yes, no doubt, a love so amazing, so divine, demands all of our love for Christ who first loved us. And then my mind wandered to Matthew's gospel, to chapter 24, where Jesus and the disciples are walking by the temple, and the disciples want to know, what will be the signs of your return? And he kind of lists those out, and then he summarizes it with this thought. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all of the world as a witness to the nations, and then the end will come. Well, friends, the end has not yet come. We think it's close, but it's not here yet. Suggests there's yet work to be done as the day draws ever nearer. And then that leads me to Jesus' final words in Matthew's gospel, just before his return to the Father in heaven. He says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all peoples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all things I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. My dear friends, Work hard while we await the King. Let us pray. Lord, may we make it our goal to please you in our every thought, word, and deed. May you compel us to work hard to persuade others. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.